his own joke. Oh, he loves oh, it. Oh, oh, man. <laughs> oh, well, don't is this recording? Passes, yeah, it is at all. This is why you're not supposed to eat in here. Are so. we not? No. John has got beef pasty over his medieval notebook. Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Jessica. And with us today is John Tickle, who is a first year history PhD student. Um, Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good friend. Against my will. (laughs) (laughs) So could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a history researcher here at Manchester? So I study medieval history. There you go. It's a funny story, actually. I was uh, looking at a sign for Bogs 2020. (laughs) And I thought, I don't want to do that at all. (laughs) So I got as far away as possible. And that's how I landed at Medieval Kingship. So I studied at Sheffield for MA and undergrad. And modern stuff was about the most difficult thing I could find. So I I just kept on going earlier and earlier. Is that Uh, because you have to go to an archive for modern stuff, whereas Medieval is all online, so you can just trawl through? It's because there were only three sources. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Like, the problem with doing modern and recent history is that there's always more stuff to read. Yeah, I feel like I've been to almost all the archives in the entire country right now. (laughs) Still not found enough information. But um, I, so I didn't go straight from my MA. I took uh, two years out, I think. Um, and I ended up working at a museum just to sort of keep interested in history, keep in contact. Uh, so it's that when I was uh, deciding to do one and I effectively thought, how can I get out of actually working <laughs> for real? Because I was only allowed to take a one hour lunch break and now I can take how long I want. So yeah. that's that's the story of how I wanted to do a PhD. The classic five or six hour lunch break yeah. that you have at least a couple of times a week. And the three weeks annual leave that you're allowed to take. Yeah, plus like even when you're not on annual leave, you do set your own work. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. It's, um, so you mentioned a little bit about the subject of your research, which is medieval kingship. Would you kind of introduce your topic a bit more, more broadly? So I'm studying about 200 years of history, Kingdom of Wessex, and over that 200 years it goes from being a single kingdom to being more or less in control of all of modern-day England. It's quite an important part of that period, but I'm looking at how the practice of succession was um, done during this period. So, uh, particularly in medieval kingship, it's not a automatic thing. Mm-hmm. When a king dies, it creates an interregnum, uh, which about five, six, seven people might turn up and say, I have the next right to be king. Um, so over this period of sort of kingdom formation, how do these breaks in power, how are they negotiated? Really just saying like, how can a kingdom be formed if every time someone dies, you have to spend a year or two sorting out who's going to be king, who has the right to be king, who has the most power, mm-hmm. essentially. And are there particular channels that gave people the right to claim? So I assume that being like directly related to the person who just it helps, died yeah. was. But Nepotism are there other always. options? So the period I'm looking at, it sort of uh, narrows down. Um, so you really have to be the son of a king to really have a claim. Um, but it does cause situations where a number of brothers will inherit from each other because their sons are too young when they die. So you have a series of cousins who are 
all as related to the previous kings who are all sons of kings um, who can inherit but you also might have within one family you'll have different wives because um, they love to remarry mm. um, and one wife might be made a queen one might have a more important family particularly the last wife the point that he dies she's got the sort of most prominent political faction mm. so um you can differentiate between the sons of any single king as well which happens a fair few times so how many kings exactly are you looking at do you know uh i think it's about 15 whoa um in w- in what time period so 802 is my start and the end is roughly 1016 okay um i'm trying to avoid the norman conquest because that's an entirely different 1066 yes, yes. Oh, very good <laughs> thanks <laughs> Some someone's got insurance because <laughs> um, that's a whole different mess. But um, the person who dies to set off 1066 is Edward the Confessor. Mm-hmm. I stop with his father, Ethelred the Unready, who is not unready. It's a pun on his name because Ethelred means noble counsel, and they thought he was badly counselled, so he was unraid. Right. Uh, Fun fact for the day. And the more you know. <laughs> So I'm going to reveal my ignorance here because doing modern history is very late, late 20th century. I basically any originality is just simply covering a subject is like my contribution. Um, But what in something that is so goddamn old, (laughs) how do you what is your original contribution? Do you think Um, what I'm hoping to look at is the way in which power is legitimated Mm -hmm. and turned into authority? So particularly in these successions, um, when you have a number of claimants trying to take the throne, how does one of them succeed? Um, how do they show that they have authority and how can it be rebelled against? Um, so it's sort of how all this discourse is negotiated at any one time, um, which I don't really think is paid attention to. People more, when they talk about succession, they don't talk about it as a moment itself it's more in the long term of looking at kingdom formation so i'm trying to take away from and try and look at succession as a practice in and of itself Mm. and are there sort of figures outside of being directly related who have a part to play in that the kind of in terms of legitimating power really in order to do that presumably you sort of need followers Mm. or people who are invested in you uh turning that power into authority so it's it's usually a kinship group so again with the different wives Mm. your different sons might have a royal a noble family in the north who's supporting them and one might have it in sussex or kent who are willing to follow you but you also have like bishops who have taught one of them who might prefer them because Mm. it will push their agenda later on Mm. Um, so it is, it is a sort of dialogue between someone trying to create their authority and people willing to support them. Um, but you've also got very external forces. So in 1016, you have um, Canute invading uh, and his father had Swain, Swain invaded three years earlier um, and kicked Ethelred out and he returned just because Swain happened to die. Um, so you do get invasions where the entire notion of being throneworthy is thrown out the window. Because someone more powerful thrown out the window. Oh, she said it. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you get it, John? Eventually. 
That's interesting in terms of like, I know there's a bit of stuff, I don't know when Anglo-Saxon history is, but isn't there stuff going on about the racial implications of using the term Anglo-Saxon at the moment? Yes. And like looking at outsider forces really like questioning how yes, much it's, we're it's British. A, it's a very uh, we're English. problematic term right now. Can you explain why? Like where, do you know when this, where this debate has come from? It's mostly, I I'm not on Twitter, so I haven't seen mm. most of it. And that's where I think it's mostly happening. Right, okay. Um, but there's one school of thought which is saying it's a very um, exclusive term that is favoured by what you, the far right, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of racial connotations, especially in um, the word wasp. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's where it's more problematic. Um, but it is also a term that is used by the people that we're looking at. Right. Um, so in the late 9th century, um, King Alfred changes the name of his title from uh, King of the West Saxons to King of the Anglo-Saxons to show that he had power over not just his kingdom, but other peoples, mm -hmm. other kingdoms within England. Um, and the term King of the English isn't actually used for another 30 years after that. So these people are describing themselves as... The Anglo-Saxons. So this is where the debate has yeah, come so out. So you can't take away the term completely. Yes. But mm. I think we can use it more cautiously, especially because when you describe England, it didn't wasn't formed as a cohesive unit till quite late. Mm. And within that, you still have um, a lot of the Welsh around. Um, Ethelstan also claims sort of overlordship over Scottish kings, Irish kings. Um, Danish kings at some point, so there's a broad... It's a hydrogenous area. Yes. Just, I guess that's so, as someone who's sort of just one term into your history PhD, what about the experience has kind of surprised you? How has it met your expectations, sort of making the transition into this kind of life after having a job for two years? <laughs> Direction is quite difficult to... Um, find at points because I think there's you can do as much reading as you want about so many varied things but if you're not directing yourself you're just reading books yeah, you're mm. just reading books um, so that's probably been the most difficult part of trying to find a section I want to work on and reading towards that instead of just being overloaded by my 15 different kings well, especially if you're coming in with a broad 200 year period <laughs> like I can, I just, can just, just the easy 200 yeah I, well I just came in like I'm gonna look at women's relationships and then you have to like narrow it down like mm. somebody about a very concise idea of what they wanted to do and I was definitely not one of those people <laughs> mm. especially hard if you handwrite your notes as John does which <laughs> I found out today <laughs> I like, I mean, I don't take notes full stop, so <laughs> any kind of note-taking is impressive to me. I'm but, like, wow, tell me how you do it. <laughs> I have notoriously bad handwriting. I keep sending uh, some people in the, the school, sort of... Oh my God, are you sending people notes in the cluster? But I'm sending <laughs> love notes. Like I keep yes, trying no. to send love notes to girls in the cluster, but they, they can't, can't read, read my handwriting. <laughs> it'll, it'll be like one or two words. It's like, I have no idea what this is, <laughs> what it was trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> or what it came out as. I was at a and cafe. All love. <laughs> I was at a cafe yesterday, and the waitress came back to the the guys at the table yesterday. Like, I'm sorry, I wrote down this order, but I cannot read my handwriting. <laughs> it's like it looks like it says beef naive, <laughs> and it was beef nachos. <laughs> but she had to get them to like transcribe her own handwriting. It's so good. Beef naive. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite Mexican dish. <laughs> yeah, I 
I think that even coming in with a really specific idea of what I was going to do, I still had to a huge amount of narrowing and, and working out exactly what direction I was taking. And I'd say I'm probably still in that process yeah. to some extent. Definitely, obviously, I know you're sort of joking about only having three sources, but being sort of source-driven is very helpful in that regard, in that the, what you have to work with can really shape your project. It's something that's so interesting to me when I talk to what I will always and forever call olden times historians. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, how do you... So what... What material is there? Uh, the main one, so you have a lot of chronicles of people just saying, in this year, this happened. Um, but they're quite bare bones because um, it's not that almost they're um, there to remind you of what happened that year. So if I wrote a chronicle this, for this year, all I might put for an entire year was, um, in this year, an idiot became prime minister and unless you've got the context of that in 200 years you might have no idea mm. what that was saying because it was sort of for you like yeah. you, you would it's know. for me it's mm. for my community it's just reminding us kind of oh yeah that happened yeah. there was a famine that year but there's not much else mm. to work with but you also have um a lot of charters which are basically land transactions um someone giving someone land but within those, um, you have a large witness list mm. of people who were at that assembly when it happened. Um, so you can tell almost, with a few exceptions of who was there, um, what their title was, um, how sort of even the order is showing how important they were as well, um, which is really useful for me because I'm looking for the Sons of Kings um, and the honour that they're given. So that's really useful. Um, a lot of coins. Mm. And how do coins work as sources? So presumably they <laughs> have the king of them? <laughs> yes. Um, I don't tend to use them as much, but they're sort of idealised representation of a king. Mm. But it's also it's their title, um, and on the back you'll have who moneyed it, and sometimes where. So you can work out where it was being minted, and so um, where that king has sort of recognition yes. and authority. Um, so there's a, I had just never thought no. of that before. Yeah. There's a really interesting one, which is King Offa, whose wife, Kinthrith, mm. is um, one of the most sort of prominent queens of the period because they were trying to get their son to be king um, and ward off any sort of rivals. And so she's actually on a coin, and it's the only Anglo-Saxon queen on a coin because she was that important mm. in Mercia. So it feels to me like queens have actually come up quite a few times just in your conversation. So are queens and consorts and such, how important are women to your study of kingship? I'd say it's at least a third, if not more, of the thesis will be on that. Um, particularly wives, there's different status mm. for wives. Um, in the ninth century, it's argued that there aren't queens in Wessex because the kings wanted more control over the succession. So if you anoint um, your wife as a queen, not only can you, is it more difficult to divorce them for a, a different wife? And they really like repudiating their wives. It's like their second favourite hobby after <laughs> like... Marrying them. Marrying them. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So not making them a queen gives you more room for manoeuvre for your mm. own successional strategies mm. and it also means that the children of that wife aren't more important so mm. it's a way of sort of levelling the playing field amongst your children and saying I can make whoever's king or if something happens to one of them there's still a son to be king because they do die very early mm. deaths quite a lot um, I think for the 10th century there's not many kings that make it past 30 <gasps> no wonder there's so many yeah, <laughs> just 30 God, them. that's terrifying. So we'd be like on our deathbeds, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like it. Yeah, yeah, some days. I know John's feeling that today. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't give him away. No. <laughs> He's hiding it very well. I've got the flu. <laughs> it's, to be you fair, the die last... of the flu, Jeremy. The last four episodes of the podcast have all had at least one sick person on them. Really? It's just that season, folks. It is, it is. Who's your favourite king? <laughs> that was just off the cuff. Ooh. But yeah, who is your favourite king? I'm a big fan of Edgar, the peaceful, uh, or as my ex-colleague likes to call him, the piece of ass, because <laughs> he's got quite a, a juicy booty. Um, you, did, you did show us a picture in the seminar the other day, yeah. and I've got to agree. Like, <laughs> even before you mentioned oh, it, Lord I was just going to put my hand I up didn't and notice be like, it. And then before I, we did a Petra Kucha, and yeah, before, it, when, the, when the image gone, like, I didn't see it. I didn't see the juicy ass. It was, uh, it was, it was prominent. <laughs> it was, and the way it was so central in the picture really gives the impression <laughs> that he was kind of proud of it. <laughs> like the the yeah. person who's illuminating the manuscript the <laughs> was like, well, how do you want to appear? And he like, immediately slut dropped. Yeah, when you're when you're praying to God and um, you've got two saints behind you, what is your favoured position? Like, <laughs> ass out. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, it's what God gave him. Mm. And he's and really he's just it. showing honour to it. <laughs> so, are you really only using three sources, or is that a joke? That's a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but life would be so easy if I was just mentioned before sources. that loads of this medieval material is actually digitised. That's that's really interesting to me because obviously it's kind of older history. Mm. So it's but you guys are able mm. to use like much more, a, let's say, current research methods to get at it. Yeah, it's really useful. I wouldn't be able to do this. Like, I have so much respect for people even 20 years ago who have big filing cabinets of every source mm. and like for the charters there's a website where you can put in a number and you get about a thousand of them and you won't get the actual charter but you get all the text everyone who said whether it's authentic or not mm. um, sometimes there's multiple versions and it'll tell you which archives they're at mm. and if like if you didn't have that, I honestly think ridiculous. that the system is now made harder for us because where you know thirty years ago, if we were writing a thesis, we would uh, we'd only be able to do as much research as like our library would permit. But we have yeah. access to a thousand <laughs> different things now. We're just required to do. I honestly think we're we're required to do more breadth and depth because of the, you know there's just everything is there for us. Yeah, and it's it's true as well that. Um, also, it just would have been imp almost impossible for someone mm. to kind of check your work. Yeah, not that long ago. <laughs> and like, it's so easy, like, to dive. What as they call it? Like, snowball through people's references mm. and use Google Scholar. Oh my God, it's my life. Mm. And people just didn't have that. Yeah, I just um, and it does kind of make you think. Like, 
how many established scholars do we know like people who we probably really mm. look up to and admire who when they were doing this 30 years ago did a job that would just not be accepted yeah. for us because it would be seen as slapdash yeah 100 percent. it's um yeah there's there's lots of things that's made more difficult by the internet but on the other hand being able to use the internet for my research is an absolute joy especially because i look at pictures so much mm. you know it's just so good to be able to just have like you know 15 pictures open in a in windows and just click through them yeah. and be able to zoom in on them and stuff. i do yeah it is all for definitely for the better technology mm. but I, I honestly think the only reason why i did medieval at undergrad was because i could just look all the sources online <laughs> i think that the, the I think it is probably true that the lot furthest back I have ever looked for something I've written and submitted since master's year at least is 1914. <laughs> the beginning of history. <laughs> Real history begins in 1914. <laughs> Which, yeah, was obviously kind of problematic and just that I assume that, like, yeah, everyone's understanding of how time passed is framed by conflict, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> God, that's such a good point. Yeah. So, in your field, what is the idea that you see people sort of repeating or adhering to that you think should be ditched? Ooh. Controversial. I know, I yeah. Know. Jess just invented this question last no, episode, so, and it's incredible. Someone, someone told me about it, but I can't remember who it was. I think it was, like, my flatmate's, my flatmate's boyfriend told me about it because they do it on, like, a religious studies podcast and saying what idea in your field should die. You know, it could be like a historiographical idea or like... A misconception. Like a misconception, a yeah. So Adam's one was like, if you study the history of the Tories, it doesn't mean that you're a Tory. Like, <laughs> of course <laughs> that you, was. If you yeah. study medieval history, you're not an incel. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a really good one. I bet you get so much hostility. Um, trying to in think. Including from me. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> Exclusively. <laughs> um, what idea should I... And it's okay if you don't know. That we all have to wear um, tweed jackets um, because I really want to. Oh, yeah, I can see you rocking a tweed. But I know I'll get mocked for it. Yeah. Because yeah, you would, and rightly so. Unless but you, you look do it, good. Ironically enough. But I feel like the image really imi ruined the yeah. practicality of it. And also, it's the only way I'm going to look like I'm old enough to teach my students next year. <laughs> Are the elbow patches part? put in there because of the archive work that medieval scholars do <laughs> i think they're i think that they're practical for like what i assume happens at every medieval conference where you fight each other <laughs> elbowing each other yeah, out of the way there can only be one uh, <laughs> historian so every 50 years we all get together we fight and from then the new school of thought is created from the surviving historian mm. and it's some sort of weird draconian fight where you've all got to crawl on your elbows yeah mm. and like the person who wins is the one true medieval art. historian and that's why you'll have elbow maybe patches you to get to keep weapons from like your particular sort of period oh my god 100 percent. you will turn up with your random shields <laughs> oh my god with um, a discus <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we ask guests to um, tell us maybe a funny story you have from your research, and it could be from your master's as well. Or it could be a time when you used to work in the museum. At the um, seminar, you did mention a 
king or potential king who had a food problem, which I thought was pretty mm. funny. Isn't that funny? <laughs> was, uh, so I he's called was... Yadrid. Um, he takes over his, from his brother Edmund, who gets stabbed at a feast. Um, so pretty, pretty metal way to become king. Mm. Um, and he dies when he's about mid twenties, I think, um, maybe about thirty. But he apparently uh, had a digestive malady, and it's described in a saint's life from someone who probably was uh, present at court or knew people who were present at court because it's very descriptive. And it, it, to quote him, it disgusted his stains. Um, but he would sort of suck his food. Back to the ASMR. <laughs> uh, he would suck his food of the juices... Oh, and then throw God. it in a bucket, but you couldn't actually chew or eat. So, so my, not funny. My big question, quite funny, because I am certain that soup had been invented by them. <laughs> yeah, bro, they they made him do that. He was the king. Or maybe of them, it was like, a power play. <laughs> so yeah, maybe like, definitely. Like, I'm just gonna suck this chicken leg, but I'm not, not gonna all eat gonna it. Watch me. <laughs> Making unbroken eye contact. Yes. He sucks on a chicken. <laughs> That's how I imagine all medieval. I used to only want to eat chicken legs as a kid because in my head that's like how medieval people. Yeah, ate. it's like a really big old satisfying. Leg. Yeah, you yeah, just gnaw on a turkey leg and then you throw it and like, like several dogs like pounce on it. If yeah, I mean I would say that the sort of food history of the medieval period is maybe the olden times thing that interests olden me the most. In my head, it's all in black and white. Whenever you say olden times, it's like <laughs> they, they exist in black and white as well. They invented. Like they invented using a knife at the table like a hundred years before anyone thought to introduce a fork. Weird. So everyone was just like <laughs> stabbing their food with a knife and then putting their knife in their mouth. I assume. I did not. But and like, it. surely that would make more sense. Like, that would be the most logical. Like, we just need like a spear and then prod it in our mouth. But the I fork. And everyone's really drunk anyway. If you're shit faced. Yeah. Were they drunk most of the time? Like, um, well, to live in a time where anxiety wasn't an issue. There's the there's the famous I don't know if it's true or not but that Viking society uh, the mead was safer to drink than water mm. right um, there's a I few think that is true right up until like fairly recently yeah not not that long ago because typhoid yeah. was like huge in 1812 typhoid was it there's a stereotype uh, amongst monks and I, I don't know if they, this is like their drinking culture or something but uh, the Northumbrians were quite prolific drinkers mm. uh, there's a saint's miracle where a North, the Northumbrians turn up at the monastery and everyone's really worried that they're going to run out but the, <laughs> they, no matter how much the Northumbrians drink they, the, the ale just keeps on pouring <laughs> and that's, that's a pretty cool saint's miracle I uh, want one yeah want that one. is top tier miracle my husband's <laughs> kind those. of into like Celtic history which I don't know anything about but he, you know, he just likes reading like popular books about it and stuff I do remember him reading to me once about, like, the one thing that the Romans thought about the Celts was that it was absolutely insane that they didn't water down their wine. <laughs> oh, but oh, I love that when I read my pop history of Augustus Caesar, who is my all-time favourite Caesar, um, he always waters down his wine. And I just love that because it, often you feel guilty if you want to water down your wine. But they all do. Yeah, it's normal. And, it's... and they thought, like, that, yeah, that the sort of Celts and people living in, like, Britain or whatever, like back then they just like just if you're gonna trade with them take more wine than you think and also they're insane it would be my saintly miracle if i had to be remembered for anything it's like jesus did turned water into wine which is like 
only did it once, if that that would be your party trick. Oh my god, that's <laughs> yeah, you'd just be doing it constantly <laughs> while you were drinking it. Yeah, I used to be my um, dream wish would be like I'd never have to like if I need to do a wee, I would just get someone else to go for me because I really. <laughs> can I didn't never know where you were going with that. <laughs> Turn it into like, here, can you take my bladder? Because I can't be bothered to go. It's <laughs> not a cool but superpower. Now you said, no, but it's really handy. Because, mm. like, you know, and also if you're on, like, She can fight crime and trips. not need the toilet. Uh, <laughs> but maybe now you say water into wine, it could just be, like, urine into wine. <laughs> yeah, just wee into a wine bottle. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> and on that note, John, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been really interesting to learn more about you and your research. Uh, Jess, thank you for hosting. Thank you for having and me. <laughs> <laughs> always a pleasure. Uh, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.